This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they always have captivating stories. Today we have a guest host, Colin Lasso, who is talking with Dr. Mario Grahavla. He's a molecular cell biologist who has focused his career on helping to eradicate Chagas disease, especially in South America. We're talking about Chagas, a fatal disease caused by a parasite that can go undetected in the human body for decades. It also can be passed congenitally and is passed along to about 15,000 newborns each year. Mario, here we are. Uh, gathered here in this studio, it sounds very solemn, but uh, to to talk about Chagas disease, uh, a disease that, shall we say, pretty much shaped your career until this point, and uh, perhaps for uh, the listening audience, those who have not uh, familiar with uh, you as a person, I I happen to know you as a person from different contexts, but perhaps shed a little light about. Uh, who you are and how professionally you got involved in this. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I am uh, originally from Ecuador. I was born in Quito, and I always had a, a very keen interest on uh, science. So I can remember when I was a, a kid, wanted to be a scientist. And so in uh, one way or another, I am now as a you know, later of my, in my career, fulfilling my childhood dreams of being a scientist and being able to contribute to society. So I chose to be a biologist uh, for my undergraduate studies. And then I uh, joined Ohio University as a graduate student. And I did my PhD here in the, uh, at Ohio University in the Molecular and Cellular Biology program, uh, working with Chagas disease specifically. And I was very fortunate to have mentors that uh, propel my interest and really gave me uh, freedom to pursue the exploration of this disease and to discover how much needed to be done mm-hmm. about it. And, and uh, talk to us now. What is Chagas disease? I mean, most people are sort of aware about malaria as the the disease of the world and, of course, HIV coming into the foray and taking over in terms of, uh, for lack of a better word, being the most known disease. Yet here we are, we're talking about Latin America that's not too far from us geographically, but not too many people know about Chagas disease. What's it all? What is this disease all about? Well, Chagas disease is caused by a parasite called Trypanosoma cruzi. And this little parasite likes to reproduce inside of the cells that make up the tissues and the organs in our bodies. Um, Now, the parasite has been around for a very long time Mm. and has been infecting uh, mammals uh, in uh, the uh, Americas from uh, way, way before humans showed up. So basically, 
any living beings? So well, uh, in particularly mammals, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, and it has developed a very good relationship with opossums and with other wild animals like that, that they acquire the parasite, but they don't really get sick. Mm. So basically now, they end up as carriers then? They are reservoirs. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then when humans came to the continent, uh, they started getting exposed to the insect that transmit the disease. And then the, the parasite started infecting people. And in people, it does cause pretty serious damage because the parasite reproduces all over the place. But in most of the organs, it is cleared from. However, in the heart and the nervous system, it remains. And these are what is called immunological protected areas, meaning that they do are not touched too much by the immune system. So when the parasite lodges in these organs, it can remain there for a very long time, causing damage little by little. And this damage eventually destroys the tissues to the point where you have functional failure. So for example, your heart doesn't work very well. Mm. So in order to compensate, the heart needs to expand. And that... So, uh, so, so do we actually see physically that the heart grows larger? Or yes, yes. And uh, while it expands to compensate because it needs to pump more uh, blood, the walls on the heart get thinner and thinner. Which is and it thing. could be that they you develop what is called an aneurysm or a little hole in the wall of the heart and that is fatal. Or it could be that little by little you start losing the electrical um, wiring of the heart, if you will, what contracts, allows the heart to contract. And that leads to an, a slow progression into uh, heart efficiency, which makes a person unable to work or to have a normal life. You mm. know, it's uh, that much hard. It's, it's really hard to live without that much hard. So, so it, of course, this has been now a full-time career for you. And uh, within this context of Ohio University and uh, your work in, in Ecuador, I understand you take a, a team of uh, students as well as others who are interested in this project. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this project, how, how we got to this point, because I know uh, that uh, it's full swing ahead. You're working very hard, have a new wonderful lab down there in, uh, in Ecuador and, uh, you know, doing marvelous work to find ways of quelling the spread of this particular disease. One of the first things that I found out when I started working on uh, Chagas disease, in particular in, in Ecuador, was that there was little known and there were no, uh, there was no infrastructure to work on. So I set up uh, with a series of colleagues and the support of friends and mentors here at Ohio University and uh, to set up a space where we can do research. And we established this collaboration with Catholic University of Ecuador that led to the initiation of this uh, uh, laboratory. Uh, and this was back in 2000. Since then, it has grown and received uh, support and funding from different uh, places. And now we have a brand new 200, I mean, 100,000 we had a brand new 100,000 square feet facility that is state of the art in Quito to conduct this type of research. So the way this has been built is very organic. And over the years, many 
different projects have been conducted, and I have taken students down um, since uh, 1999 to participate and uh, get training and also contribute to these different types of research. Um, over the years, I think we have taken about 600 students or, or so down uh, from Ohio University and many other universities around the country. Mm. So that plus the interface with an equal number of Ecuadorian students and dozens of faculty from uh, Ohio University, from other universities and from Catholic University have created this rich environment that now we have as the basis for the future of these endeavors. Mm. So in essence, in, in terms of the, you, you've sort of alluded to that a little bit, obviously it's been a few years since you, you started this work, but how are you able to now look at success in terms of work that has been done? Whether, you know, have you been able to see this in terms of reduction of, of cases uh, of infections or, you know, or treatment and, and the likes? Well, the, I, I feel very, um, very satisfied about how this work has progressed and the results of it. And you can look at success at many different ways from the standpoint of the production of knowledge. Uh, about 50 scientific papers have been produced uh, that unraveled what used to be the mystery of Chagas disease in Ecuador uh, and its transmission into uh, knowledge that now can be used as actionable items to be put into public policy. At the same time, these efforts have uh, taken a silent disease to the forefront of the public conversation. Not to the levels where it should be, but to levels high enough that prompted the Ecuadorian government to initiate the National Chagas Disease Control Program. Mm. And that in itself helped uh, hundreds of thousands of people to receive, uh, receive uh, assistance on, on vector control. In addition, through these efforts, we were able to work with the Ecuadorian blood bank system and correct some failures that they had some shortcomings in terms of quality control and coverage of blood screening. Uh, and that program has been in place since 2003. So over the decades, the many, many uh, thousands of people that received uh, uh, blood transfusions have now received blood that has been properly screened uh, mm -hmm. for trypanosoma cruzae. And, and, and they, they say some of... Uh some of the modes of transmission behind, besides getting bitten, of course, is, uh, you know, blood transfusion and, and including other things like, you know, a woman goes into childbirth. I've heard that, you know, that those are. So the, the, the real matter is, uh, if I understand you correctly, is whether there is a crack or, or, or wound of any kind in, on the human body that would serve as, a, as an entry point for this parasite. Well, the, the bug that transmits the, the parasite uh, is called the kissing bug, and it's, a, it's an obligate blood feeder. It only feeds on blood, and it doesn't really care whether it's a child or a dog or a opossum. As long as it's warm and it has blood, it's good. Mm. Uh, so once the belly of this insect 
is engorged with the blood, it defecates. And it's the feces of this bug that contains the parasite. So when people scratch in the side of the wound is when you get infected. And, or, or it could be that uh, the bug bites near the face when people are sleeping. And when they uh, you know, rub the area, they can uh, contaminate their eyes or uh, other mucosa with the parasite. So that is the vector transmission uh, of the insect vector transmission of the disease. And that takes place all the way from northern Argentina to the southern United States. The second most common way of transmission is congenital. Um, and it is a way in which this parasite is able to cross the placenta and infect the fetus while in pregnancy. So the number of miscarriages that are, okay, that are uh, caused by the parasite presence is really not known. But what is known is that about 15,000 children are born each year with congenital Chagas disease. And the third way of transmission is via uh, blood transfusion or organ transplantation from a donor that is not aware of that uh, is infected and not properly screened, uh, giving blood or, or organs for uh, therapeutic, therapeutic treatment of mm. uh, problem. Mm. So you talk about these mysteries that, that existed in ecodonic society at first. How has the project been able to, shall we say, debunk some of these mysteries or even to co-opt some of these mysteries in, in being able to, you know, do public in education for, for folks, especially around issues of Chagas disease? Well, first and foremost, back in the uh, early 1990s, there was a denial that Chagas disease was a problem in Ecuador. The public uh, health authorities did not believe that it was a problem. And why is that? Because they didn't want to put money usually? Or, or, or what is the idea? Lack of knowledge? I want to think it was mostly from lack of knowledge because it's a disease that is hidden. It's not a disease that is all that apparent. The damage to the heart and other organs can take 5 to 20 years, and most of the people that are infected are not aware that they are infected. So unless the physician is looking at, at the symptoms with an idea of this could be Chagas disease, it goes undetected. Besides, it affects a population that is underserved. So most of the people that are affected don't have readily access or ready access to uh, healthcare facilities, so they never get diagnosed. So it's underreported, and at the time there was a sense that it was not a problem. So the research that had been conducted by uh, our group has put numbers to that. We have shown that it is a big problem in certain areas of the country. Well, in other areas, it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. We have also been able to show how the bugs are transmitted, the, the disease, what are the dynamics of transmission, because these are complex biological cycles. Mm -hmm. So now we have a very clear picture of how the disease is transmitted in southern Ecuador, uh, in, the, in the Loja province, which is close to the border with Peru. And all of the biological and epidemiological pieces are in place. We know what bugs are transmitted. We know where they like to hide, what they like to eat, uh, uh, what type of perceptions there are among the population. 
we have an idea of what the capacities are uh, in the in the countryside. So in that particular area, in that particular province, now we have all the elements needed for the next step of the intervention, which is actually to do something about it. Mm. We have also been able to document that the regular insecticide base control, which means you go to a house, you spray you it with spray insecticide, it down, yes, and yes. you kill and you everything, walk yeah. and you walk away, and, and that takes care of the problem. Well, it doesn't take care of the problem. You actually get the bugs back in about six months when the insecticide effect has uh, diminished. And by one year after the intervention, the bugs are back happily, just beating people, yeah. uh, biting people and, and, uh, and feeding. So that led to one of the projects that is the most uh, interesting right now for me, which is uh, called the Healthy Living Initiative. And that is a way to think about Chagas disease not as a problem of right now, but rather a problem that needs to be continuously managed because the bugs are not going to go away. So the only way to really protect the people is by changing the environment that they lived in. And that means improving houses. We'll be back after this short message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Okay, so, so of course one of the things is, you know, traditionally, these are primarily rural folks or people who move in the traditional houses that are built with mud or other natural artifacts. Do these parasites find a good knack for liking this? these uh, natural artifacts that are used for building some of these, these in, houses? Yes, so in the southern part of Ecuador, most of the construction in the rural areas is made out of adobe. So adobe is, uh, uh, as it ages, it cracks. And these cracks are deep, and that is loved by these insects. There is whole colonies of insects. They can burrow into it then. That they are in, living inside, so they come out at night and they feed on people and animals. Now. When we started talking about changing houses, the thing is a little bit more complicated, right? Mm. Because a house is not a house, uh, is not the same in different cultures. Uh, You know, your perception of what is nice, what is useful is not the same. So if you take a house that is, you know, an adequate house here in Athens, Ohio, and transplant it into rural 
Ecuador uh, uh, in Loja province, people might not like it. People, the materials might not be, you know, adequate. The systems would be different. The types of things that you need to repair it would not be available and so on and so forth. So we started working with architects, engineers, sociologists, anthropologists, economists in understanding what are the ways in which people use the houses, what are the materials, what are the technologies that they know, why they use these or that, why the distribution of the houses, you know, why do they have an outside porch? Why do they don't have windows, for example? They have very little windows. And, and all of that then uh, was put into a participatory house design. Mm. And with our and, and what did it mean? You know, did you bring in some some people? Oh yeah, well, we have people? we have had uh, you know all people from all sorts of multiple disciplines going and, and looking into this, and together then we put this uh, model uh, that uses green technologies because you know you don't want to move a family that is living in these bad conditions and create a a carbon, you know, increase their carbon footprint, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. using green technologies that are earthquake, uh, uh, that provide earthquake protection to the family. You know, being that, that this is Ecuador after all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They need to be very sound and that protect the family from the, the bugs at the same time that it responds to the needs of this family to have a productive environment where they can carry out their uh, rural life just like they want to without having to adapt to somebody right, else's yes. uh, culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so that project has been amazingly successful because it has allowed us a deep connection to the communities. And in the process, we have had many satellite projects. So the houses, understanding and, and building better houses is the main project, but satellite projects have included uh, having uh, uh, or constructing uh, water systems, drinking water systems, uh, working in improving uh, school infrastructure, community education campaigns, uh, theater, dance for education, sports and, uh, and health education. We have worked with uh, uh, income generation activities, for example, uh, having uh, technical support to the, to the families to improve their output of the crops or uh, the organization of uh, handcrafting associations, uh, assisting the families in looking at what other families are doing the same type of thing so they can form associations and instead of selling, you know, the produce independently, they can sort of sell as a group, sell as yeah. a group yeah. for a better price, many different things like that. And what is the most fun of all of this is that these satellite projects have been conceived and implemented by our own Ohio University students through their own agency and ingenuity, working in multidisciplinary projects that combine people from across the university, mm. graduate students from the Center for International Studies with uh, the Scripps College of Communications uh, students, with arts and sciences students, with uh, uh, the Heritage College of uh, Osteopathic Medicine students working together in these teams to implement all of these different types of uh, projects. So it is super fun, 
-hmm. for me, very satisfying. And also I think that it has provided an opportunity for us to fulfill the goals of Ohio University in providing a truly transformative education mm -hmm. to these students. Because the moment that you have a student from the uh, College of Health Sciences and Professions, let's say, working together with an architect. Now, what do they have in common? A nurse and an architect. Mm. One from the States, one from Ecuador. But the moment they come together and together they look into solutions for one particular problem, then they both enrich themselves and they both understand each other. And this interdisciplinarity translates to collaboration among faculty, among institutions and with uh, among uh, you know and between the countries so mm. it is lots so, of fun. so so I, yeah, I, I can see and hear the excitement about about this wonderful uh, project of course many others probably before your time may have tried to 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 reach out and find ways of of dealing with this disease obviously you've as a as an institute you've discovered the holistic approach is the way to do it get as many people as possible on board uh, to do this uh, have there been others who have gone, say, from this particular context of Ohio University, ended up in Ecuador and then said, well, this is it. After I'm done, Ecuador it is. Have, have you had <laughs> issues, situations like that? <laughs> yes, uh, I guess. So, I mean, from the standpoint of uh, students, uh, we have had many students that return to uh uh, to work with us. So I was, as a matter of fact, uh, just before coming here uh, with a uh, uh, meeting with a student, Erin Webb. And Erin went in our, uh, as an undergraduate, in one of our trips in 2015. And now she has, uh, she's a first year medical student in a different <laughs> moment in her career. And she wants to go back and look again at these issues from a different perspective. And the same from the standpoint of faculty that have seen this scaffolding now that is in place that can support and really propel their own careers because they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They don't have to establish the collaborations. They don't have to establish the, the local agreements. They don't have to establish their own logistics. All of that we already have in place, so it's very easy to plug into that system to pursue their own uh, interests. And because of the holistic nature of the work that we are doing, then almost every discipline is welcome to participate. And so it is an issue of, uh, uh, you know, doing research in order to produce um, produce, uh, you know, research papers or, or uh, uh, products, professional, uh, professional products out of these that would serve for the faculty to get tenure, for the students to get their degrees. All of that can be done and has been done successfully over the years. Hmm. So, of course, one of the things that always when you're working on you know, science-related issues and stuff that that bring in managing a lot of people, you have to be quite adept in adopting and readopting as uh, as you go along. And what I'm hearing you describe is sort of you've figured out ways to, to bridge this gap, but then, of course, there's always this one glaring gap, that of the 
uh, you're taking people who primarily speak English into a Spanish-speaking zone, and how do you bridge that language gap? Oh, that has been also a source of uh, lots of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the way to that we have addressed that is by uh, providing appropriate activities for non-Spanish speakers where they can conduct whatever they're going to do with uh, the assistance of translators. So we pair uh, non-Spanish speakers and non-English speakers uh, with translators and then can serve as a bridge. And that has worked very well. Uh, And that has a number of different positive side effects. One is that then increases in the population of non-English and non-Spanish speakers the desire to learn and to communicate in ways that are that are very creative. And that leads to another uh, added value uh, of these type of activities. Mm-hmm. So, of course, here we are at Ohio University in the middle of Appalachia. And if you think about Appalachia, we've got you know, issues of uh, low income here, as well as poverty, uh, which are not too far-fetched from, from Ecuador. In, in looking at these parallels, uh, what, if any, uh, is the Institute looking at in terms of also having a hand locally here? Yes. The mission of the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute is to look at these issues as they affect underserved populations. And there might be geographical and uh, cultural differences between rural Appalachia and rural Ecuador. But the underlying deficiencies on the services, on the access, on the uh, educational systems, on uh, transportation, communications, all of those issues are very similar. And so by understanding the one, uh, you can understand some of the aspects that are important on the the other. So what we are trying to do now is to uh, engage local partners here in Appalachia that have been doing this type of work for many years, same as we have engaged NGOs and other organizations, governmental and non-governmental in Ecuador, and try to understand how is that we as a university, as an academic institution, can serve as catalysts through our uh, agency uh, so that more knowledge and the appropriate knowledge is uh, is uh, gathered. Um, of course, there are important differences, but I think that if we are able to um, establish this exchange of knowledge and this exchange of people between Ecuador and Appalachia, we will be enriching both communities. Hmm. Uh, uh, thank you for that question. And of course, obviously, people will ask, you know, you here you are, you have students, you have faculty from Ohio University going down as part of the uh, Tropical Disease Institute. What about others, I mean, who, uh, shall we say, ordinary people? I mean, what, what role could they play in this? Well, over the years, there has been great interest on uh, by community members to contribute. And there are many ways to participate. 
either bodily going down there or also contributing in activities locally that help, uh, you know, fund, uh, raise funds, for example, or raise awareness or connecting people uh, that might be influential and that might have interest. So uh, one prime example is the Rotary Club. The Rotary Club in Athens, uh, the Rotary Club Nun, Noon, I mean, uh, of yeah, Athens. Because there are two of them in town, yeah. Yeah, there, there are two Rotary Clubs. So the Rotary Club at Noon uh, uh, in Athens put together a proposal for the Global Fund of Rotary International in collaboration with the Morning Rotary Club as well as the Rotary Club of Nelsonville and Chillicothe, and together they pulled money, and uh, that money then was matched by the district in Ohio uh, in this global the grant. The Rotary Club district, yes. The Rotary Club district, and then that was matched once again by the Rotary Club International, and that came to be a $43,000 grant to rebuild a drinking water system in the community of Bella Maria. That now, you know, three years later, is functional and is serving, uh, you know, the, the community as intended. Mm. And these families now don't have to walk kilometers to get uh, water. They have uh, portable uh, treated water right on their, on their houses. So that is a prime example of a, of a wonderful organization that contributed tremendously to the well-being of this population. Now, how this contributes to the larger picture is even more interesting because, you see, underserved communities have issues of lack of organization, lack of cohesion, of internal fights that occur over the years, you know. Okay. Uh, and if they can work together to build, let's say, a drinking water system, then that creates that internal structure, that cooperation, that then allows them to work in other projects. For mm. example, improving each other's houses. Correct. And because, you know, in a rural context, having not really grown up in a rural context, what I understand is that that sense of collaboration of always as clusters of, of, of groups of whether it's the women's groups or whether it's the men or the young people to get together to assist one of their own within the communities um, to sort of solve a problem, whether it's on the farm or with their house or for that matter. I know this is sort of a, all over the world something that exists. Um, ultimately, I'm curious, I want to go back to this question about this water uh, uh, system that the folks have said. Uh, what role did the local communities play in the, in the rehabilitation? Or, and, and then ultimately, obviously, you have to maintain these, these systems else you know, everything breaks, and then we have to wait for, you know, a group of people coming from <laughs> Athens, Ohio, to go there. But what is their role as as community members in, in this particular water? Well, uh, they program? build the system. Mm -hmm. They build their own system. And that is that is the, the a way in which I am, I am really against paternalistic interventions. I don't like to give people the fish. I would like to help them to learn how to fish, if you will, you know, because that is, as the, the common saying says, what lasts. So for this particular water system, the community needed to get together. They need to organize. They need to form their committee. They need to get their permits with the local governments. They needed 
to decide who, how, when, why is getting access to the system. They had to work together to establish the rules. And they have now this wonderful system, right, that has a chlorination treatment plan, and they bring in the water from about uh, five miles up the hill. So it's uh, in, in it's a distance. It's a distance, mm. you know, for a, for a transmission of the, the main transmission of the, or conduction of the water, if you will. So they had to carry all of the material up the hill. They, they constructed the bridges with, uh, with help from, you know, con uh, a contractor that knew and, and was able to guide them in how to do it properly, right? Because uh, that needed to be done. And then once the system was operational, they themselves agreed to pay a fee each month. That is a modest fee. They pay $4 a month for access to X number of liters of water. Mm. That is enough to pay for an operator or to have a fund to replenish the chlorination tablets and to have a little fund for repairs. And of course, that definitely cuts down on any other waterboard-related. Yep. And since they build it, they know how to repair it. And since they build it, they protect it and they fight for it. And the moment there is a, a problem up the hill, they all get together and they go fix it. So it's, it's so far uh, one uh, year uh, into its operation is working beautifully. Hmm. Wonderful. I'm certain that, uh, you know, there's obviously more to this story. This is just but the beginning of uh, discussions of, of what the Institute is doing and, and future plans and things like that. I am certain that we will revisit this, not uh, not try to wind down and finish everything that, that the Institute is doing. And for that, uh, Mario, I thank you for, for your time, uh, for speaking to us specifically about this first first part of this <laughs> look at uh, the issues of the Institute. I, I love to talk about this. I'm very passionate about this because I think that we are doing good work that is having a real impact both in the communities we serve as well as in the students and the faculty that participate. So I am really thankful about the opportunity to share this with uh, uh, you and with your listeners. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today, Colin Lasso has been talking with Dr. Mario Grijalva about his fight against the deadly Chagas disease. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions at all or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.